Well, brethren, as we come to this second lecture dealing with the life of the man of God in the pastoral office, I'm consciously reminding myself of the humbling words of John the Baptist, as in the previous hour we approach the Lord based on his own word, without me you can do nothing. John the Baptist said in John 3.27, a man can receive nothing except it has been given him from heaven. So let us conscious that we cannot receive unless God is pleased to give. Let us together plead that his giving hand will be open to us and that our hearts will be fit to receive. Let's pray. Our Father, again we confess to you that we do desire to believe with all of our hearts those simple words uttered by your servant, John the Baptist. And as he recognized that whatever usefulness and whatever place he had in the history of redemption was given by you, so we too would recognize whatever we are to receive of any profit to our souls must be given by you from heaven. And because you are the God who delights to give good gifts to your children, we are bold to pray that you would give to us all that we need in this hour to profit as together we wrestle with these weighty matters concerning what our lives are to be by your grace as we serve you in the pastoral office. Give help then to your servant and to each of your servants who sit before your word. We trust you for your needed grace. In Jesus' name, amen. In the general introduction to this unit of our study, in the previous hour, I set before you what I've called the foundational or central axiom as follows. As a general rule, sustained effectiveness in pastoral ministry will be realized in direct proportion to the health and vigor of the redeemed humanity of the man of God, And then I sought to give clear definition to some of the key words and phrases in that axiom, and then to give some biblical support for the central truth that it affirms. We come in this hour to begin to address the first of five major subdivisions of our subject, namely, the life of the man of God in relationship to God himself. And as I introduce this aspect of our study, I want you to consider with me several texts of Scripture that set into sharp relief this whole concept that fundamental to all that we are as men of God in the work of pastoral labor is that which we are as men before God. The first is the familiar text, Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, where he says to Timothy, Do your utmost or give diligence to present yourself approved unto God. And by the use of an aorist imperative of that vigorous verb spudazzo, 
which carries in its arms the ideas of giving diligence, of making conscious, concentrated endeavor in a given course of action, Paul says to Timothy, give diligence, give conscious, deliberate effort to a specific thing. And that specific thing to which he directs his attention is to present himself approved unto God. In other words, the object of his endeavor is that Timothy may present himself tried and approved to God himself. Now, while the primary emphasis falls in the latter part of the verse upon that approvedness to God in conjunction with the public handling of the word of God, nonetheless, the foundational principle is to touch every facet of Timothy's life. Above all else, he is to be a man who is giving diligent effort to present himself in a state of approvedness to his God. And then in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 17, we find the apostle, by way of his own testimony on his own ministry, says in 2 Timothy 2.17, We are not as the many corrupting the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Now again, the immediate context is the act of preaching. But one cannot know that specific dimension of this God-centered perspective in ministry of the Word of God unless it is the foundational principle of one's life. And another pivotal passage is 1 Corinthians 4 and verses 1 to 5. The apostle here is sorting out the skewed thinking about the various servants of Christ there at Corinth. And he's exhorting the Corinthians to think rightly about the various servants of God. And so he says, Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here, moreover, it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I do not judge my own self, for I know nothing against myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. Wherefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall each man have his praise from God." And here again we see the same emphasis where the apostle can say, I have a relative indifference with respect to how men view me. What is of tremendous and central importance is what God knows me to be, not what men judge me to be, even what I judge myself to be. And though at this present time I have no controversy, conscious controversy with God, I know nothing against myself, my ultimate concern is what God knows me to be. So as we think of the man of God in his life, in relationship to and before the face of his God, I want to break down this area of our study into these categories. What we are as men before God, spiritually, then secondly, intellectually, 
and thirdly, physically and emotionally. With respect to this first division of what we are before God, men before God spiritually, I want to set forth this principle, this assertion, this axiom, you and I must strive to maintain a real, expanding, varied, and original acquaintance with God and his ways. We must strive to maintain a real, expanding, varied, and original acquaintance with God and his ways. Now, this terminology is not entirely or even basically original with me. Years ago, I came across these words in uh, Stalker's excellent book, The Preacher and His Models, and I quote now, Perhaps of all causes of ministerial failure, the most common lies here. And of all ministerial qualifications, this, although the simplest, is the most trying. Either we've never had a spiritual experience deep and thorough enough to lay bare to us the mysteries of the soul, or our experience is too old, and we have repeated it so often that it's become stale to ourselves, or we have made reading a substitute for thinking, or we've allowed the number and pressure of the duties of our office to curtail our prayers and shut us out of our studies, or we have learned the professional tone in which things ought to be said, and we can fall into it without present feeling. Power for our work is only to be acquired in secret. It is only the man who has, and here's the terminology, a large, varied, and original life with God, who can go on speaking about the things of God with fresh interest, but a thousand things happen to interfere with such a prayerful and meditative life. It is not because our arguments for religion are not strong enough that we fail to convince, but because the argument is wanting which never fails to tell, and this is religion itself. People everywhere can appreciate this and nothing can supply the lack of it. The hearers may not know why their minister with all his gifts does not make a religious impression on them, but it is because he is not himself a spiritual power. Now let me explain and define the ideas which I've sought to capture in this directive. I've begun by saying we must strive to maintain. Now by using this language, I'm attempting two things. I'm indicating that we are considering a standard or a goal. A standard or a goal set before us consciously and deliberately. And secondly, that the attainment of that standard does not come automatically or easily. There is an element of the kind of spiritual agony to which Paul makes reference as he likens his own spiritual walk and ministry to that of the Grecian games in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. So by the terminology, we must strive to maintain, I'm pointing toward a goal or a standard, and insisting that it's going to cost us something of conscious effort to pursue that standard. 
And then I've used the term acquaintance with God and his ways. Now the word acquaintance is defined in our dictionaries as knowledge gotten by personal experience or study of a person or a subject. In Job 22:21 we read acquaint now yourself with him and be at peace thereby good shall come to you. And that Hebrew word for acquaint is exactly the same word as David used in Psalm 139:3 when he said Lord you are acquainted with all my ways. This is knowledge that grows out of God's total knowledge, but it is real knowledge of what the real man or woman is. And I'm insisting that if we would be the men before God that we ought to be, that we must seek this acquaintance with God, this knowledge of God that grows out of the reality of true dealings with him. It is knowledge of God, the living God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A knowledge of God that is essentially Trinitarian, not in its objective theological convictions, but in its actual experience that we are not deists, We are not Unitarians. We have, as Owen so beautifully expounds the concept, distinctive communion with the Father as the Father, and distinctive communion with the Son as the Son, and distinctive communion with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit, the one God in the mystery and reality of his triune being. But it is to be an acquaintance with this God and his ways. That is the patterns of his dealings with men, both in grace and mercy and in chastisement and in judgment. This acquaintance with the one true and living God is an acquaintance with this God and with his ways. But then I've used the word a real acquaintance with God and his ways. And by real, I mean one that captures the principles of John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And while John is speaking as an apostle in 1 John 1, 1 to 3, he wants his readers to know he is not trafficking in an abstract notional religion. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. It is these things that we declare to you. And so I am seeking to underscore that this acquaintance with God is to be real. It's to be one that grows out of touching God with the fingers of the soul, hearing God with the ear of faith, not trafficking in notions or in feigned reality or formal or professional trafficking in holy things. Along these lines, I I love to think of the prophet Elijah who burst into the scene of decadent Israel and we find him making this declaration in 1 Kings 17 and verse 1. As the Lord God liveth before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain, etc. The words as the Lord God lives, 
Those are the words of accurate theology. But when the man of God says, before whom I stand, that's experimental and applied theology. Yes, he has a sound theology. He is the Lord God. He is Yahweh, God of the covenant. He is the Almighty One. But he is the God, not only the God about whom I speak, but before whom I stand. I live in the presence of the God whom I know. And then by the words expanding acquaintance with God, I'm seeking to underscore this very simple fact. As glorious and memorable or as undramatic and almost imperceptible were our original saving dealings with God and his ways. They will not suffice for a ministry that is marked by the unction of the Spirit of God. Our acquaintance with God and his ways must not be static and plastic. It must be expanding 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, We all with open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that image from one stage of glory to another. And truly as was said of our incarnate Lord that he grew in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man, so as we grow into the likeness of Christ. And in our knowledge of Christ, there is an ever-expanding corpus. The things that God teaches us, we stand on them and stand in them. But we do not believe that we have pushed out our knowledge of God to its utmost reaches, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's experience, as recorded in Acts 26 and verse 16, is a good paradigm for us to adopt. When the Lord spoke to him by direct revelation, he said, Arise, stand upon your feet, for to this end I've appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, both of the things wherein you have seen me and of the things wherein I will appear to you. What could be more glorious than to have the voice of the risen Christ in the midst of an outburst of the Shekinah glory arrest you and draw you and commission you? And yet, according to this account of his being arrested by grace and saved and commissioned by the voice of Christ, it is Christ himself who makes Paul know there's more to come. More to come. The things not only wherein I have appeared to you, but those in which I will appear to you. No wonder then, as an old man about to finish his course, he can say in the language of Philippians 3.10, Here is my passion, that I may know him. That you may know him? Paul You were arrested by his voice on the road to Damascus. At one point in your experience, you told us you were caught up into the third heaven and you heard unutterable things and now you talk like a neophyte. You talk like you've just enrolled in kindergarten. Paul says, yes, that's true. 
What I've come to know has made me thirsty to know him more, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. And it's something of that biblical mindset, brethren, that I'm trying to capture when I use the words an expanding acquaintance with God and his ways. But then I've added the word varied acquaintance with God and his ways. And why have I done that? For, for this reason. The scriptures, especially in a concentrated way in the book of Psalms, clearly indicate that any real acquaintance with God in the midst of the real world of real men and real things, dealing with the real issues of sin and of grace, is a varied experience. As surely as our joys become more solid, so our griefs become more acute. Just take Tom, Psalm 23. The psalmist envisions the all-sufficiency of the supply of the great shepherd where? In the quiet waters where he's fed and refreshed. Green pastures where he lies down to feed. But the dark valley of the shadow of death. In the midst of enemies and of foes. Within the compass of that very brief psalm is David's clear statement that true, vital, experiential acquaintance with God is a varied experience and acquaintance with God. And again, Stalker has captured something of this biblical truth in a very, very accurate and helpful way when he wrote, a ministry of growing power must be one of growing experience. The soul must be in touch with God and enjoy golden hours of fresh revelation. The truth must come to the minister as the satisfaction of his own needs and the answer to his own perplexities. He must be able to use the language of religion, not as the nearest equivalent he can find for that which he believes others to be passing through, but as the exact equivalent of that which he has passed through himself. There are many rules for praying in public, and a competent minister will not neglect them. But there is one rule worth all the rest put together, and it is this. Be a man of prayer yourself, and then the congregation will feel, as you open your lips to lead their devotions, that you are entering an accustomed presence and speaking to a well-known friend. There are arts of study by which the contents of the Bible can be made available for the edification of others, but this is the best rule. Study God's word diligently for your own edification, and then when it's become more to you than your necessary food and sweeter than honey or the honeycomb, it will be impossible for you to speak of it to others without a glow passing into your words, which will betray the delight with which it has inspired yourself. It must be a varied acquaintance with God. And then the final modifier, an original acquaintance with God and his ways. The word of God is full of the concepts of the realities of community and of solidarity. 
And because we live in a society of crass individualism, we do well to think more in terms of the biblical doctrines that attach to the concept of solidarity, our solidarity in Adam, our solidarity in Christ, our solidarity in the one body and church of Christ. However, the same Bible sets before us a doctrine of the most noble individualism. It's that individualism that goes all the way back to our conception. Psalm 139, when David pictures his formation in his mother's womb like God working in a subterranean cavern. And there God is ordering all the selection in the gene pool and all of that prenatal development. It is I who was conceived in my mother's womb, developed in my mother's womb, all of my days marked out for me in the sovereign plan and purpose of God. There is a precious individualism in the biblical doctrine of our creation, in the biblical doctrine of providence, where God says that even the hairs of our individual head are numbered, Matthew 10 and verse 30. When he puts forth his sheep, he calls them by name. Nothing more personal than my own name. I can be in a crowd of a thousand, but if I hear my name, I say, somebody knows me. I'm not just one face in the blur of 999 other faces. I'm an individual. My name expresses that individuality, and someone is relating to it. And so it is with our acquaintance with God. It is to be an individual acquaintance. And by using that word, I do not mean to suggest that you and I are to seek a kind of experience that no one else has ever known or experienced before. These desires and claims are the stuff of fanatics and heretics and men drunk with the heady wine of their own self-importance. But I am using the word to express the fact that as surely as there's only one you and one me, our dealings with God and his ways are not to be a reproduction or a copy of someone else's experience in all of its nuances and in all of its details And you have two excellent quotes there in your notes, one from Stalker and one from Murphy. I commend them to you as you have opportunity to read them and to reflect upon them. But having stated and explained the basic axiom that we must seek to maintain real, expanding, varied, and original acquaintance with God and his ways, before I take up the matter of the means by which we are to pursue such an acquaintance with God, I want to pause and say several things about these means. God willing, in the next lecture, we'll begin to address those means specifically. But I want us to back off, and before we plunge into specifically addressing the means, to consider these three major realities with respect to these means. Number one, these means are integrated and interdependent. 
Although each discipline will of necessity be addressed separately because each one is a recognizable spiritual activity which differs from the other. Yet, if one of them is abandoned, the others will lose their usefulness, usefulness even if their form and activity are maintained. As we consider these three major means that I will set before you, each of them is indeed a separate, recognizable, identifiable discipline. However, though we treat them individually and we experience them individually, they are integrated and interdependent. An analogy would be that which is found in the area of good physical health. Barring deformity, terminal illness, serious accident, the three keys to good health are diet, rest, and exercise. Each of the three is an identifiable entity. My diet is not my exercise. My rest is not my diet. However, they are so integrated that letting any one go, you will find a debilitating effect upon the others. They are interrelated and integrated and all are essential in the norm of course of things for the maintenance of good health. If one is totally disregarded or carelessly managed, it can neutralize all the benefits of having your act together in the other two. And likewise with these disciplines by which we maintain this varied, this real, this expanding acquaintance with God and his ways, I underscore, I emphasize that the means are integrated and interdependent. Secondly, these means are all basic and foundational. One has accurately written in addressing some of these very issues, and these are not my words, but the words of another. The Christian walk is won or lost in the battle of the basics. The battle of the basics. The believer, and here I would say the man of God, is such that he succeeds or falls in the trenches of the fundamentals. Little did I think when as a 17-year-old kid, just out of the womb spiritually, and my great battle was maintaining consistent devotional exercises in the face of many pressures, little did I think that 55 years later, that same battle will be engaged every single morning of my life. But that's reality. And with regard to these disciplines, not only must we always think of them as integrated and interdependent, but as basic and foundational. And then the third thing I want to say about them is that these means are ultimately useful only because of their divinely ordained function in enabling us to draw upon the fullness of life and grace that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Such texts as Colossians 3, 4 and Galatians 2, 20 are pivotal texts 
Paul could say in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, Christ himself is our life. Or Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or take John six fifty three to 58 in that marvelous discourse of Christ as the bread of life where the Lord speaks in terms of present tense spiritual activity. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day where our life is the constant feeding upon Christ and the life that is in him in that passage, particularly as the crucified one. Or John 15 and following 15, one and following, I am the true vine, you are the branches. And in the light of that analogy, severed from him, cut off from his life, we can do nothing. Therefore, our consideration of these means. Do not make a Christ of these means. Christ is our life, not the Bible, detached from being a means by which we have vital, real communion with Christ himself. And the other disciplines that we'll address, they are God's appointed, if I may use the concept, they are God's appointed conduits by which the very life that is in Christ is communicated to us by the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. To expect the sustaining of spiritual life without these means is to tempt God and to despise his wisdom. He has said, by these means, I will communicate the life of my Son into your soul. To despise them? to ignore them and expect to have vigorous internal spiritual life is to tempt God, to insult God's wisdom. However, to use these means without constantly tracing them up to their source of life in Christ and to be earnestly prayerful that they may be effectual, that our communion with Christ himself will be deepened and increased is to be guilty of idolatry, and a form of sacramentalism, thinking that virtue is in the act itself and will automatically be conveyed to us through that act or discipline. And so it's crucial as we come, God willing, in the next lecture to consider the means by which we are to pursue this life with God and before God, to remember those three basic things concerning these means. I've sought to demonstrate that these means are integrated, they interpenetrate, interdependent, they are basic, they are foundational, they are means by which our communion with Christ himself is to be nurtured and developed. Now I want to say a word about the ordinary context within which we cultivate this acquaintance with God and his ways. The ordinary context within which we cultivate this real, growing, 
this expanding, original life with God. Well, according to the Scripture, for God's people in general, and especially for God's servants in particular, the context of a growing acquaintance with God in His ways is one of suffering, tribulation, affliction, temptation, and opposition. I've given you in your notes a lengthy quote from Octavius Winslow's marvelous book, The Precious Things of God. And I'm not going to read the entire quote that you have uh, in your possession, but I do want to read a part of it. Listen to Winslow. We verily believe, bottom of page 270, that no Christian is thoroughly versed in the evidences of the truth of the Bible or is in a right position to understand its divine context until, contents, unless, or until he is afflicted. Luther remarks that he never understood the Psalms until God afflicted him. Fly to the word of God then in every sorrow. You will know more of the mind and heart of God than you perhaps ever learned in all schools before. We must be experimental Christians, if Christians at all. A bare notionalist, a mere theorist, an empty professor of religion is a fearful deception. Study to know God's word from a heartfelt experience of its quickening, sanctifying, comforting power. Sit not at the feet of men, but at the feet of Jesus. And then he goes on. On the top of page 272, affliction is one of the Lord's molds for shaping you into an experimental Christian. And to be an experimental Christian, his word must be inwrought into our soul. And then he goes on to further emphasize that reality. And I've given you a whole list of texts which underscore that generically, It's in the context of affliction and difficulty that the people of God are on their way to heaven and to the kingdom in its glorious consummate form. But the servants of God in particular will have this as the context in which they cultivate their knowledge of and acquaintance with God. I never cease to be amazed every time I come to that portion in Acts where in his initial follow-up of the infant churches, where Paul had so much to teach the people of God, at this point he had one dominant note in his exhortation and admonition to these young converts, and it was this, in confirming the souls of the disciples, Acts 14.22, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that through many tribulations, pressured circumstances, squeezes upon them by external trouble and pressure from within, from without, we must enter the kingdom of God. The words of our Lord Jesus, in the world you shall have tribulation, pressured circumstances that drive you out of yourself and into your God. Persecution and opposition, Matthew 5, one of the Beatitudes, just as our Lord assumes that all the kingdom subjects will be marked by poverty of spirit, 
holy mourning, meekness, hunger, and thirst, a peacemaking disposition, so he assumes that that kind of kingdom lifestyle in a wicked world is going to produce its pressure, its opposition, its hostility. And so he says, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Psalm 119 which I'm presently working through again using Bridges' marvelous devotional uh, commentary on that psalm. For me, the fifth time I'm going through that. And I've been struck as never before how many of those passages the psalmist celebrates the blessing of affliction in which he came to know his God in ways he never knew him before. It is good for me to have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. The clear implication being many of the statutes are locked to us until affliction becomes the key that unlocks them. Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, another passage that's been my meat and drink in recent days with this hearing affliction. My son, you have forgotten that admonition which reasons with you as sons. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. It is for chastening you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father chastens not? For if you are without chastening, then are you illegitimate and not sons? And then he goes on to say, this is God's purpose. He wants a growing, expanding conformity to his Son. Our fathers, according to their light and imperfectly sanctified motives, they chastened us, it seemed good for them. But our Father does this, that we may be partakers of his holiness, that there might be a growing, experiential, expanding conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7, with peculiar application to the servants of God, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the tremendous trial through which we passed when we were in Asia. In the midst of that, we thought we were goners. We thought life itself was gone. But then he says, look, we understand something. We would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning this affliction. We were weighed down exceedingly beyond our power, insomuch we despaired even of life. And we had the sentence of death within ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Why does he do all of this? Well, he tells them in the earlier verses, verse For who comforts us in all our affliction in order that we may be able to comfort them that are in any affliction through the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. As the sufferings of Christ abound to us, even so our comfort abounds through Christ. Whether we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Whether we're comforted, it is for your comfort You see, the whole mentality is God keeps us in the crucible of affliction and suffering that we might experientially know dimensions of his grace to the end that those new dimensions will flower out and touch others to their blessing as we minister to them. 
James 1, 3, and 4, count it all joy when you fall into manifold trials, knowing that's the trial of your faith that works patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. And then the text that is most humbling, Hebrews chapter 5, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, he became to all that obey him the author of eternal salvation. If the holy, sinless, guileless Son of God had to learn at the level of felt, experiential relationship to God his Father, what obedience was as a principle of life and could only learn it in the midst of suffering. How in the world do we think with all the other stuff God's got to deal with in us that we're going to learn it in any other crucible but the crucible of suffering. And so, my brothers, as we think in the coming hour, God willing, Of what are those means by which this expanding, real, varied, original life with God is to be experienced? Let's face the reality that the ordinary context is indeed this context of affliction, of suffering, of opposition, of tribulation of temptation, and God is not going to extricate you from it. And if he purposes that you will have a ministry that touches God's people where they are, and who wants any other kind of ministry, then you're saying, bring it on, Lord. Bring it on. When I hear men pray, oh, God, I want an enlarged ministry. I honestly say, shut up. You don't know what you're praying for. I was too. Because if you're going to have a real ministry, God's going to enlarge your capacity to feel and to enter into the treasures of God's word that are only unlocked in the crucible of suffering. And so, my brothers, I would not discourage you, but I would encourage you to believe that as God has laid his hand upon you, cleared your calling to your office and function in your own conscience and the conscience of his people, that you're not going to be exempt from that ordinary context in which these God-ordained means become fruitful with God's blessing to our attaining this expanding, varied, original acquaintance with God and his ways. May God grant that it shall be true by his grace. Let's pray. Our Father, it is so relatively easy to speak of these things, but quite another to embrace your dealings when you thrust us into the felt reality of them. But we do confess that we believe you are our loving Father. And that when your chastening hand is upon us, it is because you love us so deeply and yet so principally. We thank you that you are not a doting, unprincipled, fawning Father. 
but a loving, holy Father. And we pray that by your grace, you will continue to so deal with us that more and more we may become the men you want us to be to the end that we may be the shepherds and the pastors and the preachers that we ought to be. Seal to our hearts then the things upon which we've reflected and meditated in this hour. Grant us grace to pray them in, to reflect over them. Grant to us a good night of rest and bring us back in your will tomorrow, refreshed in mind and body, eager to wrestle together with what it means to be men who walk with their God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.